Welcome to The Pen in the Yard. Rabbi Michael Siegel of Anshe Emmett Synagogue in Chicago talks with author Jonathan Eig about this week's Torah portion of Miketz, Changing Our Names, Hiding Our Jewishness. You have an interesting last name, Eig. What, what's the origin of your name? Do you know? Uh, yeah, I know a little bit about it. I know that my grandparents, uh, the Eig side of the family, came from Russia, and that uh, we have found evidence of uh, people named Eig in the area uh, around Minsk, and that uh, I've even found um, some professor named Eig who was fairly uh, well-known back in those days in that area. So, uh, you know, some people say, oh, what a strange name must have been changed or shortened Bellis Island. But as my grandparents would say, who would change such a to such a terrible name? Like it's such a, a clunky, clumsy, awkward sound. Why would anybody go for that intentionally? So, uh, no, I think this is what we were what we were given all along. She made an allusion to Ellis Island saying that, well, why would anybody have a name like this? Because I think the assumption is that names were changed at Ellis Island. Yeah, and I think that myth has been debunked to a large extent. I think uh, that's right. I think that's right. People changed their names because they wanted to, um, because they wanted something that sounded different or better or more American, and they saw that as an opportunity when they first arrived. But it wasn't some random guard saying, now nah, you'll be a Jackson, or no, you'll be a Washington. But that myth was shared by generations of Jewish parents and grandparents. How'd you get your name? How do we get this kind of American sounding image? Oh, the guard at Ellis Island didn't know Konigsberg or something like that and gave me a shortened version of that name. Right. And someone's done a study of that. And the fact is, is that they can't find one case where that was actually true. So that's a myth. Dara Horn writes about this in her book, um, People Love Dead Jews, right? This is a whole chapter in her book where she shows the research of this person, which basically says that Jews really, and what she did was she went to the city office and studied the records and showed the scores and scores of Jews who changed their name. And they would actually have to go to court. They'd have to go before a judge. And they would say that they wanted their children to not be ostracized by the name they had to give a reason why and so you can see the you can see that that this was you know part of the american experience was giving their kids this chance and so this is an old story that goes all the way back to this week's portion yeah isn't it interesting uh, before you get into the portion isn't it interesting that we had to invent a myth about it that we we weren't comfortable just announcing, declaring boldly that we changed our names because we had to ascribe the uh, the cause to someone else. Well, this is the hard part. I think you hit on something really, really important here because what's the motivation for t- creating a myth? Because the truth is too harsh. It's too, it's too difficult. Because if you tell your children well, how did we get this name? Well, it's because we wanted to spare you anti-Semitism in this country, right? It's one thing to talk about, oh, we escaped from the pogroms in Russia and it was horrible there, or we got our family got out just in time, you know, in Germany, or they didn't get out in time, right? That's the other part of the story. But it's always over there. But when it's here and the anti-Semitism is here, what do we do with that? And if we're going to change our names what happens to the rest of us? You know, is there a reason? Maybe there's something wrong with being Jewish and we should just, you know, divorce ourselves from that totally. Yeah, that's a really um, 
unfortunate way to think about it that uh, we're running away from our identities. Um, you know, many times after slavery, African-American families changed their names because they were eager to break with their past. They didn't want to carry the name of their slave owner. Um, so they mm-hmm. invented a new name or they um, reconnected with a family that they'd been separated from by taking back the name that they had before they had been sold from one family to another. So there's a declaration of pride and identity there. But here, what I think you're saying is that there's a choice to identify with new American identity as opposed to the old Jewish one. So right. In, in black circles, you'll hear people say, well, that was my slave name. Right. Right. But here, what you're saying is, this is my diaspora name. Right? This mm-hmm. is, I'm choosing, yeah. I'm, I'm choosing this one, right? Because I want to I want, I want to have every opportunity in the, in the, and by the way, by the way, there was real, there was real cause for this. If you'd apply for a job with a very Jewish sounding name, the chances of you getting that job was much less if you had a more American sounding name. We shouldn't be so cavalier in our criticism of people for doing what they did, but it is fascinating and a little chilling that we created this entire mythology, right, of the guard at Ellis Island. In fact, what the researcher shows is that at Ellis Island, they had a very sophisticated system. They had people who could speak in every language, including Yiddish. There was a very careful monitoring going on there. So that that never happened. And here in the portion this week, you have Joseph, who, in a sense, is our first diaspora Jew. I mean, it's kind of a funny thing to say because we don't even have a country yet, and Jews are also already changing their identities, trying to fit in in Egyptian society. Now, the portion picks up. Joseph is still in jail, and his ability to read dreams ultimately takes him to the throne of Pharaoh, where Pharaoh is having these dreams about cows and things of that nature. And Joseph is able to interpret his dreams and kind of uh, help the Egyptians economically create a program that's going to allow them to survive the upcoming famine. That's a big part of the portion. But the Torah then tells us something really interesting, that Joseph gets a new name. He's called Sapenat Panea, which is a name given to him by Pharaoh. And if it's Egyptian, we don't know what it means. In Hebrew, what it, what it, it does have a meaning, which is the revealer of secret things. So Joseph, in a sense, has a secret. And he marries, by the way, Osnat. Osnat is the daughter of Potipharah, the high priest or the sun god, Potiphar. This is the, the high priest. So, so he's now part of the royal court. And he is married, you know, he's married to the daughter of one of the high priests of Egypt. He had a very bad experience with his brother. And so here he is. And he has taken on literally a new identity. And the question is, does Joseph even wonder who he is or is he even looking back? I think that's the question that I think Jews in this country could ask themselves as well. Once you have taken on this American persona, do you look back at your Jewish identity? What do you do with it? You know, I hear what you're saying, and I wonder, you know, obviously some of it is particular to Jews. Some of it is universal for any culture that it has to adapt to new environments, to new surroundings. Um, you know, anyone who immigrates, there's going to be this struggle to fit in. And how much of your old identity do you maintain 
Uh, how much do you want to maintain? It's particularly acute, I guess, with the Jews for so long been a people without a homeland. So, you know, hanging on to that identity is, you know, has this extra level of importance. And I, I think that, you know, certainly adds a layer of difficulty to the question. So here's our problem. The world that Jacob and his sons were living in believed in multiple gods, right? That was the general thinking. And Jacob is carrying around a new message, which is there's one God who created everything. So they are, Jews are the ones over there. That's, by the way, the term Ivri, Hebrew, it comes from the word over, which means over there. We're over there and the world is over here, right? To be a Jew is to state you march to a different drummer, that you see the world differently. And Judaism is a way of separating you from the world, how you eat, which day of rest do you take, right? Your whole belief system and your sense of yourself within the world is very different than the way that most people see you. So you are other, you know, by definition. And so when the world sees you as other, that can be a really dangerous, uncomfortable thing. Okay, you want to be other? Then fine. You stay over here. And I, why do I have to let you inside? This has been the whole story of the Enlightenment and then the revolutions and the emancipations. Well, where are, where are the Jews in all this? And Joseph is, in a sense... The first example of this, but there will be millions to come of how do we manage that in society. And it's a really challenging issue. Yeah, it sounds like it's especially challenging at that time because this is a radical, dangerous um, notion that is going to bring down prejudice and, and hatred upon you because you're challenging the orthodoxy. There's always some truth to that because the Jews are a minority everywhere they go. But in this particular time, it's really challenging a fundamental concept of, of how people believe. Well, that's exactly right. And that applies to this very day. And there are points in time where things go along very nicely and Jews are accepted or more or less accepted in society. But then there are pressure points, which then call everything into question. I think in some ways, we're at one of those pressure points right now. Anti-Semitism and uh, anti-Jewish activity uh, is becoming more and more pronounced in our society. And Jews are trying to figure out what to do with that. How do I manage that? That's one thing to look at. But even in Joseph's life, if there hadn't been a famine in the land and his brothers didn't show up, you know, looking for food, and if his brothers didn't find themselves standing before Joseph, if Joseph had never seen them again, would he have ever turned back to Judaism or would he have been lost? That's a question that doesn't get answered, but it's a question worth asking. Because there are moments in our lives, no matter how far we are from Judaism, it's a tap on your shoulder. Something happens which brings you back, and you have to decide whether, you know, where am I in all of this? Where do I stand? And do I want to affiliate? Do I want to align myself with the faith of my fathers, with my Jewish people? Or do I want to be free from them? That's an interesting question. And to, to add just one more wrinkle into all of this, 
the host society that you thought you were being accepted into may ultimately reject you. And that's been the history of our people. Right. All the people who changed their names uh, when they immigrated thought that they were going to ease the path. And maybe they did in some ways. But I'm guessing that for almost all of them, at some point, there came a bump in the road where they said, OK, well, uh, changing the name didn't really do the trick. There are still issues here that need to be resolved. There are still choices I have to make for my grandparents. It was, you know, it happens so often. Right. How how can we keep our children kosher in growing up in a world like this? Right. Uh, day after day, there are choices and decisions. And, um, you know, you don't changing the name doesn't doesn't solve it, the problem for very long. Rabbi Hirsch, who was a great rabbi of what we call neo-orthodoxy in the uh, end of the 19th century, had a phrase which says, be a Jew in the home and a man on the street, which is a chilling phrase, right? Mm -hmm. Be a Jew in your home, but a man on the street. Meaning when you go outside, make sure you're dressed in the modern garb, but you can keep all of your Jewish practices, but just do it quietly. Do it in your home. Do it in the synagogue. And, and you go to Germany, for instance, and you want to look for a synagogue. There's some very large ones that are very prominent. But many of the synagogues for a long time were actually inside. Like you'd have to walk down a corridor. You, it wouldn't be prominent from outside. You'd have to go into a, a courtyard and then find the synagogue. If you go to Spain, you'll see this. Because Jews were sort of hiding, in a sense, in plain sight. And so it's a very interesting issue that Joseph is that guy. And I, I'll end with something that Mordechai Kaplan, great rabbi who is also the founder of Reconstructionism, once said in his book, um, Judaism as a Civilization. Jews live in two civilizations, in their own and in the countries in which they live. And they want these two civilizations to play an equal part in their lives. That's where that quote ends. But I'll just use the, uh, the Yiddish phrase, Menschen tracht und Gott lacht. People plan and God laughs. And that seems to be our history as well. And that's what Joseph finds out, that you can run, but you can't hide. I'll talk to you. Thank you, Jonathan. <laughs>